Good morning. So this morning we are moving into the second week of Lent, second Sunday in Lent, uh, in our Lenten series that's entitled The Me I Want to Be. The Me I Want to Be. Last week we asked some questions about getting a sense of where we are in our walk, where we are in our kind of spiritual journey. And we talked about asking some different questions rather than just, you know, do you feel like you're kind of spiritually growing, kind of these abstract questions. And we sat with some questions that I think were really important. Questions that John Ortberg in his book of the same title invited us to think about, maybe a little more practical, like are you becoming more easily discouraged these days? Or are you becoming more easily irritated these days? And I hope you got some time to dwell on those questions and to ask those questions and to listen to some other people's feedback on if they think you're becoming more irritated or more discouraged and to wonder about that. And this week in section two, uh, Ortberg starts to say that what will happen when that takes place is that we're going to start recognizing that there's a gap that exists in our life, okay? That when we start asking these questions, that this gap is going to be that we're going to realize in some ways this is where our life is, and over here is where God is calling us to be. This place that God's calling to be us to be is a place of joy and a place of pace of uh, peace and a place of patience and a place of passion and a place of purpose. And then sometimes we feel that, but then other times and in other places we're impatient, we're irritated, we're discontent, all these other things. And so we become aware of this gap. And the question starts to become, well, how do I become more like this than like this? That's the me I want to be. How do I start making the gap and the change? How is it in a world where I see the world like this, God wants the world to look like this? A place where justice rolls down like waters and righteousness like a mighty stream. And then we look at the news or we look at our world or we look at our neighborhoods and we're like, but this is where the world is. How do we bridge this gap? And what Ortberg says is that for many of us, our default is to take initiative, right? I'm going to take initiative with this. I'm going to come up with a plan. I've got an idea. This is going to cure the evils in my life or in society or what we're going to do. And so I'm going to take initiative to bridge the gap myself. That's what makes us successful at work. That's what makes us successful at school. We take initiative. We work. We discipline ourselves. We achieve. He says that it causes people to all do all different kinds of things that don't fit. If you've read chapter two, section two, there's kind of this wonderful part where he says that, that people sometimes will be like, you know, I'm going to start kind of investing in my relationship with God. And so what that means is I'm going to take some more discipline in my life. I'm going to be waking up at 5 a.m. because wise people I know say to have morning quiet time. And before anyone else gets up or what I'm, I'm going to wake up. Am I a morning person? Nope. But I'm going to wake up anyway because that's what God wants me to do. And I am going to bridge that gap because it will make me more spiritual. And Ortberg's saying, if you're genuinely not a morning person, no one might want to be around you at 5 a.m., whether you're awake or not, and that you have to consider that Jesus might not want to be around you at 5 a.m., so just taking the initiative and going, for some people that works. For other people, they're wired in a completely different way. And so they've got to start not taking initiative with the gap. But Ortberg says we have to start paying attention to how God will bridge this gap. And that's not just church speak. That's not just kind of some abstract theological thoughts. Ortberg says that if we don't learn in our lives to start paying attention to what is God doing in my life to change and shape and transform me? And how do I start positioning my days to respond to the Holy Spirit and to the presence of grace rather than following religious rules or initiating on my own? Then we will just continue to become more irritated, more discontent, more discouraged. 
These things will just stay there. And that's not how we're meant to live. We're meant to have eyes to see what is God doing here and to participate in God who, if we'll pay attention, is bringing that gap together. It's about learning to receive and to respond rather than initiate. The scripture passage that we'll look at to help us guide that process today is one verse from 1 Peter chapter 1. And this is what 1 Peter says. Peter writes, although you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and rejoice with an indescribable and glorious joy. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Pray with me. Lord, that no matter who we are, no matter how we walk in here, if we're honest, there is a gap between who we are and who we want to be. Help us to get eyes to see this day and this week how to look for your fingerprints, to look for your spirit, and to respond to what you are doing rather than taking and placing ourselves in the driver's seat and doing it on our own. We pray for this in Christ's name. Amen. What Peter is saying in this passage is that when it comes to your spiritual life, when it comes to spiritual maturity, that what ought to mark spiritual maturity is joy. This is what Ortberg says is the difference. When we try to bridge this gap on our own, we feel frustrated, we feel tired, we feel stressed out, we feel discouraged because we can't maintain that stuff for long. What Peter's saying here is that we're not meant to be marked as believers and followers of Jesus by discouragement. We're not meant to be marked by cynicism. We are meant to be marked by joy. He says in kind of a way that's strange when you read it in English, rejoice with great joy. This is a big deal for Peter that we see this. And so religious maturity and spiritual maturity is not about are you following enough rules? Are you waking up at 5 a.m. and having spiritual time? Are you following all the things that you're supposed to do and guilt tripping yourself into whatever it is? But if you have found unique ways to be alive in Jesus, people will see it because you will feel more joy and others will experience joy from you. You see how different that is than going, are you following enough rules? And how are you uniquely wired to do that? God's going to work in your way to span that gap in a completely unique way and format. I have had a bit of a crash course this past week in seeking to understand and to live this way. My family has gone through a hard week, and it's important for you all to know that because this is not a week of happiness, but it's a week of joy. It's an important difference in those terms. My favorite definition of joy is from C.S. Lewis, who says that what most people want is to be happy. He said, there are going to be weeks when you're not happy. There'll be days when you're not happy. Happiness has to be a product of circumstances. Joy, he says, what Ortberg's talking about, what Peter's talking about here in 1 Peter, is that joy is seeing and recognizing the presence of God and seeing God's purpose. Seeing God's purpose can give you joy. It gives you purpose whether you're happy in a moment or not. This has not been a happy week, but it's been a joyful week. To understand... This week really, in some ways, started 10 months ago. 10 months ago, my dad, who lives in Atlanta, was out visiting me and and my family, which mostly means he was visiting the grandkids, uh, my two daughters. Beth and I just happened to be there. They live with us. They're housed by us. We feed them. And so he had to come see us. He was mostly there to see my daughters. 
Um, and that was a big trip for him because my dad has um, become a caregiver to my stepmother, his wife. She has a disease called Huntington's disease, which is a neurological um, disease and disorder where you essentially lose all function. And as her disease has progressed over the last eight years since her diagnosis, my dad has become more and more of a caretaker for his wife. So what happens often in that is your world becomes smaller. And so my brothers and I, I have two younger brothers, one of whom my middle brother lives in Maine, my youngest brother lives in Montana, Hayes. Um, we were like, we gotta find a way for dad to get out. And so we decided he was gonna come to Austin and visit us. We worked uh, out how that could happen in Atlanta. And he came and he got to do all the grandparent stuff he get to do. We got to walk the girls to school with me. He got to go to an all day Saturday dance competition, which was awesome. And he was really pumped about. He got on Sunday to come to two of our worship services. Uh, we had a really good time. But as I was driving him back to the airport, I said to him like, dad, You've got this cough, this recurring cough that's going on all the time, and I think you need to get it checked out. And he goes, well, it's just allergies and sinuses. My dad had always suffered with those. And he said, but you're right, I probably do just need to go to get it looked at. Um, and what happened is between April and June, he went through a series of tests and was diagnosed in June, eight months ago, with a disease called pulmonary fibrosis. Pulmonary fibrosis uh, is a disease of the lungs. It is a disease where... Uh, uh, because of this condition, as I understand it, your lungs kind of harden and scar, okay? They become uh, uh, scarred, and what that means practically is, is when you breathe in, when you inhale, oxygen cannot pass from the lungs into the bloodstream, and so as the scarring increases, you have a harder and harder time catching your breath and breathing, and in its, when it's bad, you feel as though you're suffocating. You can't catch your breath, and then you panic, and it can snowball quickly. But when they diagnosed him with this disease, as devastating as it was in June, uh, they said, you know, the average lifespan for after diagnosis from pulmonary fibrosis is three to five years. Can be more, can be less. It depends on how uh, aggressive the disease is. There's nothing they can do about it. There's no medicine that works on it. You cannot reverse the effect on your lungs when it happens. So it's just a question of time. We obviously prayed for a longer stretch of time, but by end of October, beginning of November, it was apparent that his was a more aggressive form of the disease. I had to go kind of on a last minute trip back to Atlanta in November to try to drive him to some doctor's appointments. He wasn't doing well. He got on oxygen, uh, which he now has. And so we started knowing the time frame was shorter. A week ago today, after the fourth of our four services, my, I had a phone call from my youngest brother, Hayes, who lives in Montana, saying that the day before, on Saturday, that my dad had taken a real dramatic turn for the worse. And the long and the short of the story is, is, that, is that early this week, we made the decision, he made the decision, that it was time for him to go under hospice care. And that he is very much facing the last weeks, maybe months, you don't know, of his earthly journey. I have not shared this publicly. I've shared it with my small group, with the personnel committee. Um, but I've not shared this publicly for a couple of reasons. First off, when we're up here, we're meant to, we're, our call is to proclaim the gospel. Sometimes we tell stories about our own life. Hopefully those stories don't get in the way of proclaiming the gospel, but the point is never the person up there. As Bonhoeffer says, we're called to be a window to the cross. If you all leave any Sunday talking about what's going on in my life or Jill's life or John's life, that's a fail. We're proclaiming the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. And secondly, I know that many of you are walking with pain. 
and hardship. And just because I have this platform doesn't mean that, that I need to draw you into that week after week. But I felt like this week is important for me to share with you all for a few different reasons. The first is, is that we've entered a phase where this is now much sooner than we had hoped, and it's running around in my mind and my heart all the time right now. This was a hard week. This was a sad week. Um, and I think that as we want to talk about being honest with each other in a community that's authentic with each other, I've hit the point that it would be disingenuous of me to stand in front of you and you not to know what's going on in my mind and in my heart. We are secondly asking for prayer, to see you pray for my dad and for us as we try to walk this journey. Um, we know, we know that as people of faith that we are not spared suffering. Jesus was not spared suffering. None of us has spared this. Even the people in the Bible who were cured, and I've seen people cured physically of disease through the power of God and through miracles, those people eventually died. This is, this is where all of us are headed. And that God's promise is not to spare us from that, but to redeem it, to transform it, to bring life out of suffering and out of death. And I'd ask for your prayers. But third, and most importantly for why I wanted to share today, is as I said at the beginning, I've gotten a crash course this week in what this life can look like. Because of this, if I'd gotten a call on a Sunday after work saying that my dad was in this case, and it was from my youngest brother. He would have been in Montana. He would have heard about what was happening in Atlanta. He would have called me in Austin. He would have called my brother in Maine, and we would have all had to figure out what to do and who can get there and how do we make things happen. But he wasn't calling me from Montana. He was calling me from Atlanta, where he had arrived the day before. And I wasn't here at Covenant. I wasn't at home because after worship last week, I drove to the airport and was at Austin Bergstrom Airport when he phoned me getting ready to get on a plane to fly to Atlanta. And when I called my middle brother, David, David wasn't in Maine. David was in Logan Airport in Boston catching a flight to go to Atlanta as well. And the reason for that was six months before I had been invited to attend and participate in a conference that was taking place in Atlanta. And when I accepted being a part of that, both my brothers, knowing my dad's condition, said, man, let's all go together. Let's go and let's take dad out. And it's hard for him with his own sickness and with Susan's sickness. Let's take him out. Let's go do the things that he likes to do. And so we decided months and months ago we were all going to get together in Atlanta. It was the first time in six years all of us had been together with my dad in one place. And by Sunday late afternoon, we all were sitting in my dad's living room talking about what happened next getting to journey with him in person through the decision to go under hospice. And as we kept saying to each other, isn't it amazing that we're not doing this over phone calls and emails and text messages, but that God had orchestrated this in a way that we are all sitting here for the first time in six years in a room together, telling stories, crying, laughing, and being together. That's holy ground when someone makes that kind of call in their life, and you get to be there and do it with them. And the weird part is, in the four days I was there, because the conference started on Tuesday afternoon, so we had Sunday night, all day Monday, Tuesday until four, and then some times interspersed after that. We, we had a great time. It was not happy. 
But my brothers and I were like idiots together again. It was like we were all 13 years old again. We were like started teasing each other. We actually got into a wrestling match at one point. We went jogging together. We pulled out photos of before my parents divorced and started telling stories and remembering things. We laughed and laughed and laughed and cried and hugged. And it was an amazing period of time. Was it happy? No. Was there purpose in it? Yes. Was it joyful? Yes. Did I rejoice in it? Yes. Was I happy? No. When I left on Thursday afternoon after the conference ended and I went and saw my dad and just had a few minutes with him before going to the Atlanta airport, I said to him, like, Dad, you know, I love you, and I just want to know how you're doing. Like, how are you doing in all this? And he said, Thomas, how am I doing? Well, I'm dying. But isn't it weird that the last four days have been like the best days of my life? And the word he used were, was, they've been the most joyful days of my life, seeing us all together and having this time. And it was. It was hard and joyful. And I think the reason for that was is that we all went in with an agenda of how these days were going to work. We're going to do this. We're going to play golf here. We're going to take them to this restaurant. Here are all the things we're going to do. And when we showed up, those agendas went out the window. And all we could do was receive what the day held. All we could do was just receive it. And we received a lot. I received unexpected gifts. Unexpected gifts at a conference wasn't in Philadelphia or in Los Angeles or somewhere else, but it was in Atlanta, Georgia. Unexpected gifts of my brothers both coming into town. Unexpected gifts of this holy and sacred time that we got to walk through together with my dad. Unexpected gifts that we saw the Lord's fingerprints all over the redemption of this time and of those decisions, but also gifts that I don't take the time to open anymore. The gifts of time with my dad. The gifts of time with my brothers. The gift of laughter and of memories and of stories. They were there the week before. I just didn't open them because I'm too busy doing the things that I need to do to bridge the gap in this world, to bridge the gap in my life, to bridge the gap in my relationships. And this past week, we had no option but just to receive. And God's fingerprints were everywhere. I don't tell you this so that you walk out of here talking about it. I'm not planning on talking about this next week or the week after. And it's a fail if you leave here with this story and this news as what the conversation is today. I'm not walking out of here that way. Last week, I saw what it was like to receive a gift every day, unexpected ones and ones that are present that we are too busy to open. And I took the time to receive and to open them. And I don't want to leave that lifestyle back in Atlanta. Because God is no less present today than he was last week. God is no less present in your life than he was last week or the week before. The question is whether we slow down enough to look for it or whether we believe the idea that life is about charging and initiating and moving forward. And so I invite you 
this week to join me in this journey, this Lenten journey that now I am on of seeking and looking for the fingerprints of God every day, of receiving what God has to give every day, of realizing that that is the place of joy in each of our lives and not being too busy to miss it. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we do ask this day and this week that you would fill us with joy. This is a world where we will experience pain and difficulty and loss and sorrow and heartache and happiness and celebrations and joy. Lord, more than anything else, I pray that this week we would see your presence in our life that we would see how you have been at work giving us gifts, that your grace is alive every day, that we would find the margin to seek your fingerprints and to open the gifts you have for us and to have joy, an understanding of the presence of your purpose. Be with us in these steps. And as we go, may we rejoice with great joy and the God who was and is and is to come. We pray this in your name. Amen.